Hello and welcome to another episode of Working Overtime, the bi-weekly advice-focused chutney to working's non. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I am your other host, Isaac Butler. That intro made me very hungry, June, but before I, know, I go to uh, order some Indian food, what are we talking about today? Well, Isaac, I want to talk about ways that creative people can, and maybe even should, if at all possible, get help with their artistic projects. This topic popped into my head because a couple of months ago, I had to write the acknowledgements for my book. It was both one of the most fun parts of the writing process. I mean, it's all about gratitude and affirming, supportive, positive relationships, but also the most difficult. I mean, I can't imagine that I'm the only writer who is absolutely terrified that she might have left someone important off the list. I really wanted to thank the people who had made the book what it is, though, and I was struck by how many different people in lots of different settings had helped me. So I want to talk about that help, but I also really want to encourage listeners to seek assistance if they can. I think that artists, especially solo creators like writers, tend to pride themselves on being self-sufficient, and that is great, but everyone needs a little help sometimes, and getting it can make a project better. So just to kick us off, did you have a similar realization when you were writing the acknowledgements for your first solo book, The Method? It wasn't exactly an epiphanic moment for me, to be honest. And I think that's just because, like, it, my background in theater, collaboration, yeah. the amount that you depend on people is just drilled into your head from a very young age. You know, I remember a middle school drama teacher being like, let's imagine if you didn't have all the tech people and the designers, you'd be naked, standing in the dark on an empty stage, and the audience wouldn't have chairs or, you know, whatever it is. And that, <laughs> yeah. that image really stuck with me, you know, because it is every kid's worst nightmare to be standing <laughs> naked in front of their peers. Uh, the thing I wanted to avoid, though, which is very common for first books, is thanking like every single person you have ever met. You yeah. know, the the guy who sold me my sweater at uh, this place <laughs> six months ago or whatever. It just feels yeah. so good to get that thing over the fucking finish line, you know, but yeah. at the same time, I did want the gratitude to mean something. Yeah, for real. I have to admit here that I was aware that I am a little older than the average first-time author, and there was part of me that was like, okay, here's your chance to finally thank people. And, you know, I have met quite a few people over the years, but I hope, I think, I believe I managed to resist that urge, especially because I am convinced that there are more books in my future. I hope there are more books in your future, <laughs> in part because I believe one of them will eventually be dedicated to me. I just, I just there's a part of my me that's like, I think number four or five, mm -hmm. I think I'm going to get in there. Yeah, yeah. If I keep writing enough, I think that's a, a definite maybe. I do also want to acknowledge before we get going here that some of the roles that are crucial to the writing, especially of a nonfiction book, we probably don't need to spend much time on because most people realize that they're involved. You know, the agent, mine, by the way, is an absolute genius. The editor and, you know, the entire licensing and production and sales and marketing teams at the publishing house, the experts and individuals involved in whatever story you're telling, who share their thoughts and experiences in interviews, the librarians who help us figure out how to get the most from their collection and who... Oh my God, since COVID, we'll scan hard to find publications and documents for researchers. Oh, that is such a gift. But those are familiar roles. So we will thank them and take them as given. 
I want to talk about some of the other kind of helping things. Isaac, the method, your first solo book, was about a concept and a practice that originated in Russia and was conceived by Russians. And I don't think you gavarit paruski yazik. So I assume that you had some research assistance. I definitely did. But I also want to know, did you look up how to pronounce, do you speak Russian in Russian? How do, how, how do we end up with that? No, I, I do speak Russian. Well, I did, but I've forgotten most of it except for that. Holy crap. The things that you learn about, mm. I, I've known you for like 20 years and I'm learning <laughs> new things based on uh, working overtime. Okay. So yes, part of it is that, you know, Stanislavski, the Russian that you're talking about, his work is very complicated. He was very complicated. <laughs> the last, you know, 15 years of his life were lived under Stalin. And so the historical record is mm. really in doubt. There's Oof. a lot of unanswerable questions, you know, so I was really lucky to be gradually put in touch with the kind of community of other Stanislavski obsessives in academia who I would schedule Zooms with and be like, what do you think about this? And what is that? And one, oh. they would recommend books or you know we all sent sources to one another when i went to the ransom center i would and scan stella adler's notes i found some stuff that was really useful and i sent it on and everything like that two of them i should mention uh, by name bobby ellerman who teaches at the strasburg institute and david chambers at yale were both like the book would have been nowhere near as good if it weren't for them that said there is tons of stuff in russian that has never been fully translated including stanislavsky's voluminous diaries which are published wow. in their complete form in Russian, but have never been published in English. It turns out, though, and I think David was the one who told me about this, there is a website that is a warehouse, an online warehouse of Russian theater primary source documents in Russian. Wow. And so I would download those. I would use Google Translate to translate them, which is surprisingly good for Russian to English. I would read, and then when I found a passage, that seemed apropos, I would then contact a friend who spoke Russian and like, hey, could you translate this for me and pay him, obviously. Yeah. And that was incredibly useful. Wow. That's so interesting. And also just kind of waiting for that little zzz, kind of like the, the neon sign coming on that you say, okay, this is something that I need to get more insight on. That I mean, I, exactly I think if you're, you're a nonfiction about. writer who yeah. does research based on fiction like you and I do, there is a real thrill when you see, you know, the name of someone from one situation comes yes. up in a source somewhere else or, yeah. you know, you're reading a, a someone, an actor's memoir and suddenly they're complaining about working with Stanislavski. So you're like, yes. oh my God, this is incredible. So, yes. you know, I think that thrill is very, very addictive and I think is part of why we do this. Yes, indeed. And because I know her, I know you work with a researcher for The World Only Spins Forward, uh, your book about angels in America written with Dan Coyce. How did that work? And is it something that you recommend? Yes, indeed. The great Ray Binstock, who's a, <laughs> a friend of yours as well. Actually, how we wound up with Ray is uh, Ella McLaughlin, who's one of our major sources on the book because she played the angel in Angels in America for several years through its, many of its early incarnations all the way through Broadway. Ellen was like, hey, I have this student who loves Angels in America. It would mean a lot to me. If you need research help, if you would consider her. And I met with her. We had coffee and she has an Angels in America tattoo and all this yes. other stuff. And I was like, welcome on board. 
expert and she was incredibly <laughs> helpful. So, so much so actually that I brought her in on the method and she was a researcher on the method as well. I mean, it's a freelance gig, you know, I, yeah, I gave yeah. her a job. She would send me how many hours it was and I'd pay mm-hmm. her a certain amount per hour. You know, with these books, there's just so much research to do. The deadlines are tight. Your deadline mm-hmm. was tight too. I know having someone help to collate it, sift through the chaff to find the wheat, yeah. or sometimes you'd be like, Hey, can you give me a timeline of this? Or a lot of what I've asked Ray to do sometimes is like, Hey, can you go through the New York times for this decade, find every mention of these people's names and put that into a spreadsheet for me so I can go through and read it. Right. So that's taking care of the busy work so that I can do the other work. Now, one thing I will say is that what she did not do, I'm sure she would be great at this. This is no (laughs) knock on her. It's just a thing that I believe in. She did not do research and then like write a pressy on that research, which I then used lots yeah. of big name nonfiction, particularly pop historian, bestseller writers. That's how they managed to write those tomes every couple of years. But everything that is cited in the book, I personally read that said she was essential. She was absolutely essential. It's hard to imagine that book ever would have gotten completed without her. Amazing. One of the things I try to remind myself of on a regular basis is that we each have a limited number of hours per week, per month, per year, per lifetime in which we can get things done. And spending that time wisely means doing the things only you can do, the things you're best at, the things that you enjoy. And if that means you can't fit some tasks into your schedule, it's a good idea to consider spending money to get them done. We're going to take a short break, but when we're back, we'll talk about smart ways to get paid outside help. Hey, listeners, Isaac Butler here. I just wanted to pop in real quick and say, do you have any tips or questions about the creative process? Well, get in touch and share your advice. You can email us at working at slate.com or even better, you can call us and leave a message at 304-933-9675. That's 304-933-WORK. All right, back to the show. And we're back. Having interviewed her for working, I knew that one person in particular would have some smart insights on this. So let's hear from her. This is Rebecca Lavoie. I am an independent podcaster, host of Crime Writers On, co-host of These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order podcast, and host of Netflix's You Can't Make This Up podcast. I get help with first pass audio editing, especially with Crime Writers On. We hire a very talented young recent-ish college graduate editor who's done a couple of internships in audio. And she basically goes through our tape, our raw tape of our taping of Crime Writers On, cuts out all the ums and ahs and big flubs and, you know, a little bit of trimming here and there, puts in the audio clips and then sends it to me for a final mix. It saves me about, I don't know, six to eight hours a week of time. We also get help from Fiverr. We use Fiverr to get voiceover stuff and sound effects and jingles for these are their stories. We've met some really talented people through there. And contrary to popular belief, they charge more than $5 a lot of the time. And uh, there's some good people over there. One other thing I want to mention, I think it would be unfair to not mention, we have somebody come in and help us with housekeeping. Every week, a service comes in, does some basic housekeeping, kitchen, bathrooms, 
our bedroom, kind of the main areas of the house. Saves us a lot of time so that we can actually have downtime in between all the work that we do. That is a huge help. Actually, it makes our work life way more productive because we can actually have weekend time. Thank you to the great Rebecca Lavoy for sharing that. That's really smart, right, Isaac? Once you reach a threshold where you are earning something from a project, it can be a pretty straightforward calculation. This takes me X hours, and if I earn Y dollars for it, I can afford to pay someone else Z dollars to do this task. And unless it's something you absolutely love, if you are still in the black after paying someone and it will make for a more successful endeavor, I say, by all means, put some money in their pocket. Put money in thy purse, June. Put money in thy purse. Yes, absolutely. It is all cost benefit, especially if you're, you know, like Rebecca has like a podcasting empire. We should also yes. know that it's not just one podcast she yeah. has. She she has like uh, 7,000 of them and they're all successful and demanding of her time. And she also has a job and she also yes. has a family. It's a great example. You only have so much time in those 4,000 weeks of your right. life. Hire someone to do the stuff you don't like or that simply takes too much time. For me and for a lot of other nonfiction writers I know, that thing is transcription. Transcription takes forever. I would rather go to the dentist than uh, transcribe an interview. Pay someone else to do it. I use Rev.com, which is a website I learned about from uh, actually work with Slate. I don't know if Slate still uses it or not, but they used to. You can do an AI transcription or a human transcription. I always do the human one, but whatever. Unless it's uh, something like a heavily accented speaker or the sound quality is really poor, then I will actually like pay someone I know a little bit more money to get it done. I've never worked with Fiverr, which Rebecca mentioned, so I can't speak to it personally, but that kind of gig work platform can be a practical option. Say you're making a podcast, but you don't have corporate resources that can provide artwork or a theme tune or professional voiceover talent. Hiring someone to do those things on an as-needed basis can make a huge difference. I am not a musician. I could not make my own theme tune. But having a great one, and I have to say, Rebecca's podcast, These Are Their Stories, has an outstanding one. It can really elevate the sound of your show, which is good for building an audience and for attracting advertisers. And she's absolutely right that paying someone to take care of necessary household tasks does indeed buy time that you can spend on other things. I imagine as someone with a young family, you would rather read with your daughter than clean the toilet, Isaac. Yes, absolutely. We do have a cleaning person who comes in once a week. We have a babysitter who picks our daughter up and watches her two days a week. The other three days, she's in after school. Because this is New York City, we drop our laundry off at the laundromat around the corner rather than do it ourselves. Actually, very early on in living together, this was an important problem where we were like, let's just throw money at this. Like, yes, it's, not, yes. it's not worth having this fight every week about how the laundry is going to get done. They're right. actually, for most people I know, and this is certainly true of my wife and I, too much to do in a given yep. week for the two yep. of us to do it. We both work incredibly hard. She works even harder than I do. And the options are be comfortable with a more chaotic life than we are comfortable with, pay someone else to do it, or have zero free time. And we chose the middle path. 
I think that's the right one. I, I also must mention that I think my household is one of about 10 in Edinburgh that sends out its washing. Our flat does have a washing machine, but to be blunt, British washing machines are trash. You end up with a lot of wet clothes and I don't want to live in a small apartment that is stuffed with drying racks full of damp clothes. I can afford to pay to outsource that work. And believe me, I do. The one time I went to Edinburgh, this is very early on. Anne and I had just gotten together. She was doing a show at the Fringe. I went to the Fringe. We were staying in a you know someone's apartment that the producers had rented. And I used that washing machine to clean my clothes, not knowing <laughs> this thing about British washing machines. And my clothes were entirely wet and damp. And I, I don't know, it was a disaster. I think of the fact that I was able to wear anything for the rest of the week was kind of a minor miracle. The fact that Anne stayed with you is in itself another minor miracle, but thank goodness that worked out. I guess my main recommendation here is to at least consider spending some money to get help. It may not be possible. Life is expensive. And for most people, the arts do not pay well. But let me suggest one exercise. Make a list of things you would like to do to support a project. And if you think they are important, but beyond your capacities or areas of expertise, just do some rudimentary calculations to see if it's practical to pay someone to handle those tasks, even if it's on a one-off or a short-term basis. For example, if you think it's important to have a website to promote your book or your record or whatever, and you don't know anything about building one in 2023, Figure out how much it would cost and decide if having a website is worth that expense to you. It may be, it may not be, but at least do yourself the favor of, you know, just pulling out an envelope. You must use the back of the envelope and just do some sums. We will be back with more thoughts about getting help after this. Hey, listeners, Isaac again. I just want to remind you that if you are enjoying working overtime, please subscribe so that you can never miss an episode. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, we'd love you to rate or review the show. Believe it or not, it really does help new listeners to find us. And if Overcast is your app of choice, please hit the star to recommend this episode to others. All right, now back to the show. All right, let's list some other areas where people get help. When I talked to her for working, writer Harper Bliss, who who self-publishes her romance novels, talked about hiring people as beta readers to give feedback on her first drafts. She also hires a copy editor because, you know, there isn't anybody at a big publishing house or a small publishing house for that matter. She hires that person to self-publish. And because she often writes series where characters appear in multiple books, she has someone prepare and update Bibles for each series that she can consult to see things like, oh, in book three, Emma was working at the university and she had a fling with Priya so that in book five, she doesn't forget those things. I also have friends who have hired someone to help them with their book proposal. My agent was enormously helpful with mine, but if that's not your agent's forte or if you just think it needs more help, then it's reasonable to ask an agent to provide. That's something that can really pay off, not just in terms of getting a deal, but an editorial consultant's feedback can help you see the book in a different way. I will admit I have a little bit of mixed feelings about what you mm. just said. Not about Harper Bliss hiring editors. Like if you're self-publishing, 
you know, protect yourself, get a copy editor, yeah. <laughs> for example. But I do think there's this growing trend in the publishing industry of people not really doing their jobs and expecting authors to pay consultants mm. or freelancers mm. or whatever to do them. If you have an agent and you are a nonfiction writer and your agent is not good at giving you feedback or they are giving you tsuris about, you know, how much work they're doing on the book proposal, fire them. Like hands down, find another agent. It's it's mm. it's completely absurd. I had friends who read the method and gave me notes as it was written. They were incredibly important to the making of that book. I also, though, have a brilliant editor in Ben Hyman at Bloomsbury, who was very involved, gave great notes. Sometimes those notes were just us having lunch together and talking about things. Sometimes those notes were line edits, but, you know, uh, he was really important to that process. I am very lucky. I have had friends at other houses who got essentially ghosted from their editors, basically oh had no notes at all and had to figure Ugh. it out on their own. That's a serious abrogation of their duty. And don't even get me started on all the problems various authors I know have had with their in-house publicists. I love my publicist. I also am friends with publicists for hire that I know, but in a just world, there would not be publicists for hire because yeah. the people at the publishing house would again, do their jobs. And frankly, there would be enough of them hired and on yes. salary that they could do their jobs, right? It's not yes. necessarily, in a lot of cases, people are doing the best they can with the limited resources they have. Yep. And the publishing industry is a business is in all kinds of trouble. And I recognize that, but it still just makes me crazy. Just like it makes mm -hmm. me crazy that authors have to pay their own fact checkers. They have to pay to have an index made for their book. They have to pay to license their own photographs. All of that strikes me as unfair. It is also, however, the world we live in. No one author, even group of authors are going to change that. But, you know, some of those norms, they're, they're really maddening to me. Yeah, I hear that. I want to acknowledge, too, that we haven't spoken in this episode about AI, because I think we both have enormous reservations about it. But I do want to mention that there is other non-human help you can get from software. When I was pitching and writing my first book, other than my agent and editors, I didn't work with a lot of humans, but I did spend money on software. You mentioned using Rev for transcription. I use another transcription service called otter.ai, which saved me a ton of time processing the information that came out of interviews. And it also means that you can access all your interviews, including the audio in one location at their website. I think that's oddly a underappreciated benefit of using these services. Because I started my project during lockdown, and so I didn't or couldn't do the traveling I had intended and expected to do to interview people in person. I paid for a Zoom account so that I had a consistent way of doing interviews that also provided a reliable way of recording the conversation that wasn't time limited. I didn't want you know the, the Zoom window to close after a certain number of minutes. And now that I'm in another country and it's hard or at least expensive to pick up the phone, Zoom has become even more important. I also pay for a service called Readwise. I use software like Obsidian and DevonThink that are my personal knowledge management systems. I use a service called Instapaper. Services like that are also ways that we spend money in exchange for convenience or so that we can devote our time to other tasks. Isaac, any last thoughts about getting help with our creative projects? Yeah, the only thing that I would say is whether we're talking about using, you know, software like Instapaper or whatever, or we're talking about hiring human help, 
it is worth saying that there are all sorts of different trade-offs. There's trade-offs in time and there's trade-offs in money. But it is also true that you want to be thoughtful about which stuff you're asking people yeah. other than you to do. So for example, like you and I both love compiling notes. We do it mm. in different ways. Yours involves software. Mine is, uh, you might be surprised to find out, somewhat chaotic. But you know, <laughs> part of the thing about that process of compiling notes is that new ideas spark off of it, yeah. right? Going back Definitely. into research that you haven't looked at in six months or whatever, to turn those underlines into notes, you know, that, that, that refreshes you in this way. That's really valuable. Yeah. I would never want to ask someone else to do that because yeah. that's important to me. That's important to my process. Another writer yeah. that might not be an important part yeah. of their process actually. And so sending that out for someone else to do is, is perfectly valid. So it's just to think about the cost benefit yeah. of each of these things. The other thing yeah. I would say is that none of this is just limited to writers. You and I are both writers, so we probably talk a little too much about <laughs> writing on this. Probably. But, you know, like most famous painters have multiple assistants who are doing things yeah. like stretch or they're hiring someone to stretch their canvas, you know, yeah. just getting help, whether it's someone cleaning your house or proofreading a text for you or whatever, you know, all of that stuff is really, really important if you do it right. And the final thing I would just say, because I know that we're skeptical of AI for a really good reason, which is that AI should not be used to replicate creative labor. It is, among other things, a ethical issue in terms of, you know, like the academy, it, it fits the definition of plagiarism. But it, it's also true that ChatGPT, MidJourney, all that bullshit, that is not an actual tool for unlocking creativity. It is an engine of plagiarism that devalues creative work. And every time you use it, you're helping it become a more sophisticated engine of plagiarism that devalues creative work. It is garbage. Do not help it become more convincing garbage. Do not use it. That's all I'm going to say about that. Tell us how you really feel, Isaac. <laughs> that is all the time we have for this episode, but let me leave you with one last piece of advice. I think you should subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have ideas for things we could do better or questions you'd like us to address, we would really, really love to hear from you. You can send us an email at workingatslate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. If you'd like to support what we do, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get bonus content, including exclusive episodes of Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and bonus segments on episodes like our flagship show, Working. And you'll be supporting what we do right here. Thank you, as always, to Working Overtime producer Kevin Bendis and to our series producer Cameron Drews. We'll be back on Sunday with a brand new episode of Working, and in two weeks, we'll have another Working Overtime. Until then, get back to work. Work.